Welcome to Radio Finance, the podcast that helps you understand the transformative developments taking place in the world today. It's very important to realize that markets take 20 years, okay? Zero to two in my is infancy. Two to five is kind of adolescence. Five to 10 is young adults, and 10 to 20 is maturity. It's very important to understand it's generational. I'm very grateful and happy and excited to be able to speak to the Dr. Richard Sander, father of financial futures uh, at the Chicago Board of Trade in the 1970s. Um, He is the originator of the interest rate futures uh, that the entire financial services industry, the banking system, uh, you know, depends on uh, for its cost of funds. Um, and over the years, uh, he's been involved in uh, the commodities, in building the commodities futures market. Um, and in days long forgotten, uh, the climate change um, futures for uh, clean air and, uh, and all of that is, that is happening today um, with the Paris Accord um, and the COP26 uh, initiative and so on. When I look at uh, Richard Sanders' uh, CV or rather his life story, uh, I get this impression that he is the father of markets in general. Um, you know, and every time he saw a problem, uh, he, um, he thought that uh, the best solution for that problem is the creation of a market uh, because uh, you know it's the best uh, platform uh, to realize the price, the cost uh, of uh, resolving a, a risk uh, of any kind, whether it's commodities or the environment. So I'm very happy today uh, to be able to speak to the man himself. You know, there are a few people who I um, you know actually wish that I had met before in my life. Um, I'd say you know Walter Riston would have been one of them for the innovations that he did in the financials, in the banking industry, John Boyle in the, in the fund management industry, uh, and so on. And along with these legends um, is Richard Sander. So Richard, I'm so happy uh, to be able to have this chat with you. And I have a lot of uh, uh, you know, basic first principles uh, to check with you uh, in this conversation. Thank you. It's an honor to be speaking to you again, Um, and I'm excited, as you are, uh, about the dialogue, Um, and want to say thank you to anybody who might be listening and viewing for opening up your computer uh, or your home to this dialogue. And, and this is the legendary uh, picture of you with the hat and, uh, you know, and in a relaxed Chicagoan style. Were you born in Chicago or, you know, are you native to Chicago? No, I uh, was born in uh, New York, Brooklyn, New York, um, and uh, grew up there, uh, born and bred uh, and went to graduate school and uh, got a PhD from the University of Minnesota. I I had a wonderful economics teacher. Um, And he said to me, you really should study economics because it is the queen of the social sciences. So I went to graduate school in Minnesota 
I left there um, and then uh, got the privilege of teaching a landing at Berkeley, California in the 1966, and I taught there for six years. So uh, it was the birth of everything different, of civil rights, of, of, of every sort, gender, diversity, gay, straight, whatever came out of the Berkeley campus. But out of that same campus, Emmanuel, came an open-mindedness towards finance. It was the birth of modern finance theory. It was 66, it was Harry Markowitz. Uh, it was Myron Scholes for the Black Scholes. It, it was a vibrant, the Berkeley Stanford finance attitude. And you had to realize that the world was changing. And that became a petri dish to grow all kinds of new objects and bacteria, not only transistors and Silicon Valley, but a lot of modern finance came out of California in those days. That's interesting that you put it that way because uh, you see, you're saying California is the tail that wagged the dog because um, a lot of what the US um, you know, financial system today is, is from that so-called Berkeley Mafia, you know. Yes, <laughs> it was, and and it was it was the nature of the times. You know, you you couldn't think, you couldn't walk out on campus and watch twenty different student advocacy groups, whether, as I said, it was for gender equality or racial equality or. Or, or every sort of, of student rights and things of like, remember that was called the free speech movement, which was began in 64. Uh, as a student of history, you will know the whole idea of curriculums being open, that students had rights to learn, that open dialogues, especially confrontational between faculty and students were encouraged. So it was not only the birth of Silicon Valley, but the birth of ideas about social change um, at the time. You know, from everything that you're saying, that's a conversation in itself, uh, because um, when we think about everything that the US and the world is going through today uh, because of the pandemic, um, you know, how far uh, can we take, um, you know, the, the idea of uh, liberal, liberalism maybe, but the idea to be able to think freely and to create freely, um, you know, and, and, and whether we've now arrived at a point where some form of control is possible. That's a conversation in itself, okay? It is uh, absolutely in itself. I have uh, said to people who have questioned me about climate and things like that. And in the, the, the book that I wrote, I said, if you want to look at the future, look to California and China, okay? That the, the best leading indicators are what's happening in those geographies. You know, my mentor and friend, Ronald Coase, wrote a book when he was 101 years old, and it was it's called How China Became Capitalists. 
and the fundamental hypothesis was they started with a blank piece of paper um, in the late 70s when the first class of Peking University came back after the Cultural Revolution. There was no model, so they had to make it up and they had no legacy problems. And California was the same thing in the United States. It was three hours from Washington, nothing much mattered. It was a gold rush state. Institutions were built from, from scratch and there were no legacies that distracted them and forced them to do things the same way that others do. And well, in some ways they made it up as they went, um, you know, uh, and in some ways they constantly checked the difference between China and California would be that China kept checking with, you know, with so-called best practice uh, leaders around the world. And they were actually agnostic uh, as to whether they were learning from the US or from Europe or from some other parts of the world, um, you know, what, what made the best sense for them. And, and they constructed something that is uh, unique to themselves, but but they borrowed and they uh, and they benchmarked. They, they 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 you know they compared themselves to the structures that were put in place. And that's where I come to talking about you, uh, which is when China thinks about markets and especially today in emissions trading, they think about you, Doc. <laughs> you know, and and you set the tone, the standard, and uh, and and you helped them with some of the infrastructure, didn't you? Yes, I did, and and um, I I am very uh, proud of the fact that I was able to confer with the head of the central bank, the head of the a five-year planning commission, the the you know NRDC, the the various uh, mayors of cities, and I found what you said an incredible open mind and. And because when we first made our speech, we were invited by the UN, it was 2005 or six, about 16 years ago. And I said, um, I have a novel idea that, you know, uh, as you get wealthier, you like all nations will have to address environmental issues. It is Kuznets curve, a famous economist that if you figure out a correlation between wealth and, and environmental activism, it's directly related. So the wealthier you get, the more you turn to your environment. In some sense, China was totally open to the idea that yes, that they would at some point have to deal with an environment with, the, as you and I have spoken of Beijing with no Sundays or 20 Sundays a year, that there was a change going on. And, and after wealth had been achieved and hundreds of millions had been taken out of poverty, as public policymakers, they were going to face a challenge. Nobody said that's stupid. Nobody said we, and in other countries, people have said it's, 
you know, you're really a little crazy here, you know. And and even when I gave a talk in you in the UN at the Rio Summit in '92 for a market in carbon, it was pretty bizarre. But I did not have that problem in China. The answer was really, and how would you do that? And we ended up partnering with CNPC. We were an American firm and the biggest uh, company in the oil China. company. Yeah. Yes. PetroChina became our partners. And this is back in 2007, 15 years ago, we were partnering with the biggest oil company and one of the biggest polluters in China to fashion a public policy that would work for the Chinese people. And, you know, that was pretty out there. <laughs> when I look at your career, um, you created the interest rate futures market, you created the, you know, the climate bond futures market or the market itself. Um, you know, you, you, you were instrumental in the creation of the, you know, commodities, uh, you know, risk paradigm that that uh, CBOT, you know, uh, CBOT uses today. This is, I'm just throwing it at you, that whenever you saw a problem, you, you saw markets as being uh, the way to solve them. Is that a fair generalized statement? Yeah, and let me kind of put it in a, in a general theory. So I, I'll give you my experience and then uh, my views as a student of economics. We will put it in two buckets. So let me give you my bucket one if you take a look. If you take a look at the history of financial innovation, and I'll, I'll give you four examples. Um, the invention of the limited liability corporation in 1605 and the financing of the Dutch East India Company. Let's talk about uh, maybe the birth of, of rice trading in Osaka in 1697. Yep. Yep. Let's talk about the birth of uh, agricultural futures wheat in 1848 in Chicago. Then let's take a look at the birth of the mortgage-backed certificate in 1970 in the U.S. And then let's take a look at the birth of uh, climate and environmental goods and services. It's, they all follow the same pattern, okay? The, the pattern is simply, boom, there's a big structural change. And there's a need for capital. So in the case of the Dutch East India Company, the Europeans had to finance the development of uh, the uh, spice trade and they needed to raise capital and there wasn't a financial way to do it. There were only partnerships and shares were invented and that, that allowed capital to be raised. After the structural change occurs, you have to grade it. So the share certificate became a homogeneous instrument. So you need legal evidence of ownership for a market to work, unambiguous property rights. After that, trading comes out informally, then exchanges, then derivatives, then complex financial contracts. 
I could go on, but that there is a pattern that goes. And what's most important, I think, for people listening is to realize is financial innovation may have been the reason for European hegemony for 500 years. The invention of double entry bookkeeping and the limited liability corporation were incredibly important as much as gunpowder or any industrial in, in invention. And there's no authorship generally. When I see an inefficiency that could be solved, I consider all of the policies that could be done. And, and one of them, markets serve to, to provide Japan with food, America with wheat, the Dutch with an exchange, the, the, the British with, with cotton, that if we take a look at, at the people who developed the standards for a product, they own the world. And that's a very important thing to, to consider. There are actually three inflection points that I want to test with you from just what you have said, right? Uh, you're, the person that you keep referring to as being your mentor, obviously, is Ronald Coase. I'm in the process of completing my first book, and I actually mentioned Ronald Coase um, in the same sentence as Adam Smith, uh, because, um, you know, Adam Smith, funnily enough, was not a friend or not a, a fan of institutions uh, of, of big business. He, he thought that the small business owner uh, was the best arbitra arbitrator of, uh, of price discovery. Um, and, but then, uh, you know, uh, civilization evolved over, uh, you know, since Adam Smith's time to, to today, um, creating bis big business as the, you know, repository of profit, of uh, information, of, uh, you know, of organization, uh, you know, to, to get things done. And actually, I came across uh, Ronald Call's name because he um, sort of gave a reason why big business eventually became the you know, the repository of, of commerce. Um, and, and his basic point was that, um, you know, that information wasn't um, readily available to the small business. So the, the big business was the, was the best form uh, in, in, its, in its own day. The institution was the best form uh, to, to garner in, uh, information, uh, you know, on what to pay workers, um, you know, what the uh, price discovery of goods are and, and so on. Um, uh, and yet, he, uh, he he promoted the idea of markets, uh, you know, to 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 liberalize that that uh, price discovery mechanism. And 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 you are his number one student in in that in that regard. Uh, and and you've made a, a reality in terms of everything that we see in markets today. And honestly, this conversation, uh, you know, it's it can go in ten different directions. But I, I just want to pin it down to the one thing that matters today. Um, emissions trading, right? Uh, when you look at um, the prices that are being traded today, and I'm just going straight to the point on this one, um, you know, in Europe, uh, in Switzerland, uh, in the markets where there is a lot of regulation, uh, the price, um, you know, for you know for carbon trading uh, seem to be more workable. In other words. Uh, the price for which um, you know the parties are willing to pay for carbon uh, is the 
kind of right price for it to be able to be used to go out there and um, you know rectify um, you know all of the problems created by you know um, a carbon emission. Um, you know, and then the markets that are actually very free. Um, you know, the price is trading at between seven and ten dollars, uh, which seem to be not so enough. So. It seemed that you need a little bit of regulation, a little bit of um, um, you know um, policy, you know help uh, to make markets work. Um, you know, so I'm going to throw that at you, and maybe you could give me a sense of um, you know, do you think that we are arriving at a point where uh, markets need to be you know constructed? It needs to be coiffed. Yeah, I am of the belief that basically. The, the markets that are environmental markets that are transparent, properly regulated, and set caps correctly are the best and most efficient ways to achieve reduction. And it is like Adam Smith or David Ricardo that the best way to achieve is specialization, where the people who are most capable of reducing emissions are incentivized to do it. In fact, it's a palindrome because it's a mapping. Because if, if I am the, the, the polluter and... and I'm no good at cutting emissions, but you are. I have to buy your reductions and I'm forced to pay for my pollution. You, on the other hand, have a profit incentive to produce those reductions. So the market by a price rewards the people who are doing the stewardship and the reductions and punishes it, not by a fee, but the market sorts out the incentives properly. Now, what's very important to recognize, and it, it's very important to recognize this in China and for your audience, the European carbon market is now 16 years old, okay? It began in, in 05, there was a pilot phase there was a goal from 8 to 12 to achieve Kyoto protocols. The caps weren't sufficient. The caps were tightened. And we finally got with no disastrous impacts on the economy. They've been getting better and better and reducing emissions, but it's taken 16 years. So I think it's very important to realize that markets take 20 years, okay? Zero to two in my is infancy. Two to five is kind of adolescence. Five to 10 is young adults. And 10 to 20 is maturity. It's very important to understand it's generational. You don't start with a 777 or an Airbus as your first invention. You have a basic invention and then improvement inventions. The hypothesis is it's gonna take 20 years, no different 
that it took 20 years to get to the internet. It took, an, it took another 12 years to get to the smartphone. It took another 10 years to get to the cloud. You know, we, it's not instant gratification. Ronald Coe said to me, you have to tell your story because most of the economics profession thinks markets are like spontaneous combustion, that you rub two sticks together and what you have to do is you have to be sure that the timing is right. Okay, that's important. You have to make sure there's perfect competition. You have to make sure there's institutions for price discovery. You have to make sure there's an adequate cash market. You have to educate the regulators. You have to educate the lawyers. You have to educate the accountants. You have to educate back office and structural people. After you do all of that, you have to then educate the traders, the liquidity capital that's provided, the speculators, the market makers. It is a complex web of economics, sociology, psychology, regulation, and in lots of cases, legislation. So financial futures required an act of Congress a new regulatory agency, a redefinition of what a futures was, and it took 20 years to mature too. They don't happen overnight. I resonate with what you're saying. I mean, I thank you for taking time to, to build that message because yeah. you are, you're actually speaking like a businessman uh, who's built something <laughs> from scratch. Uh, even on the platform, uh, the markets, you got to make it happen. It doesn't, it's not a, we will build it and they will come. You know, it, it's a, uh, is you got to get your first client, you got to get your second client and your third client, and then um, you know, and and show that it's working, and then you get the whole market mechanism, you know, moving. The World, the World Bank retained me to take a look at why financial futures failed the first time that it was tried. And I did a report, uh, I did an autopsy on the body. Uh, and I said, look, you, you started to, to look to trade a bond futures when you didn't have an organized price discovery in the spot market. You didn't have a repo market. There was no lending. So people couldn't go short against the cheap futures. You had, you had no institutional knowledge. 20 years later involved the, the, with the, uh, the Chinese Financial Futures Exchange and, and, and work with them in the design of the bond futures that now trades in China and say this, and I say, believe it to my heart, markets have to be designed specifically to fit the culture of the country in which you were in. So what is good for the US is not necessarily good for China. Alternatively, at the risk of being politically incorrect, a big challenge in China is to control speculation. And there's a very big difference between gambling and speculation. And, and there is a, speculators provide an important social role. Venture capitalist allows an investor to separate the financial risk from the scientific risk, right? And 
doesn't have to worry about the capital, you take other people's money. And, and that's what it does. In financial futures, a farmer who doesn't want the price risk of the crop that he's planting, he gives it to a speculator. In all cases, with speculation, you are transferring a risk that exists. That is different from gambling where you're creating the risk for recreational value, right? So we have to be very careful to encourage speculation, but not gambling. Gambling doesn't have anything other than a recreational value, but the idea, and it was important in China when we said, look, you have to be very careful because it's a culture that, that cherishes and, and has sayings, as you well know, about chance and luck. And these are key elements to the Chinese culture. And given that predilection, you have to carefully regulate these markets. The big difference between China and the U.S. is that here, uh, you know, um, things like markets can be driven by policy. You are the father of the Chicago Climate Exchange. You're the founder. Um, and you're basically the founder of a nationwide exchange for climate change um, or for, you know, for emissions trading. Amazing, you know, amazing achievement. What's unique? What did it take to build a nationwide exchange in the U.S.? Uh, as, you know, in China, it's you know, or many other countries, uh, it's very policy driven. Whereas in the U.S., you have to go out and you know and 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 you know talk to different people and persuade them and so on. So to bring it together. So what did it take to bring it together? Well, it it um, it took incredible amounts of personal time with the right people. Okay, that is decision makers, policy makers, and in different organizations, the identification of a decision maker at Ford or IBM or Intel or American Electric Power or Southern California Edison or Wisconsin Power. In some instances, they joined and agreed to cut emissions voluntarily in Ford's case, because the younger Ford wanted to make an imprimatur on Ford being a green company like his predecessors had invented mass manufacturing. So the idea of making a transformational change was good. Second of all, it was practical because if they learned how to control emissions in their Fremont, California plant or their Detroit plant or Flint plant, they could use that technology in Marseille for their assembly theirs. And that was going to be regulated. So they saw it coming. DuPont saw a profit opportunity. They could change the uh, refrigerants, um, which are highly yeah. you know, sensitive, they're high impact. Intel saw they could change how they scratch chips and make money from it and reduce emissions. Um, some people did it for the PR because they were in a consumer products business. So this requires building and it, it is a network. Okay, of like-minded people. And it is 
a very difficult and long task because at every point you have to recruit as many people who can effectively reduce emissions and partner them with people who need to buy the services of remissions reductions. So every time there was supply, you had to create demand. Every time there was demand, you had to create supply. So it was a constant pulling of one player here, a counter run there, an industrial user of coal with a producer of wind energy. It was a question of taking a complex network and making sure that at the different ends of the pipes met. What's amazing about you is that, uh, Doc, is that um, you're not just a man who created markets in the 70s and 80s and then into the 90s. Uh, I, I just love the fact that you wrote, a, you just published a book in 2018, uh, Electronic Trading and Blockchain. Uh, so I have this theory, um, and, and it comes from someone I read uh, from the RAND Corporation, someone called David Ronfeld who says that society moves uh, from its tribal origins to its institutionalized forms and then into markets, um, and then it's moving into the future, into networks. Um, as the man who created markets on so many different levels, markets for financial institutions, markets uh, for commodities, markets for um, you know, carbon trading um, and the environment, um, and you're also involved in, in uh, the initiative to build uh, a U.S. replacement for the LIBOR market as well. Um, do you see this transition? You know, markets in an institutionalized framework um, is uh, every country, every place has its own market and their institutions and their own. And they uh, represent... Uh, you know, their territory, as it were. But in the networked world, we can be global, we can trade with each other, we are all nodes, um, you know, connected to each other and so on. Uh, do you see that transition and how would you describe it uh, in what you see taking place and how markets are changing uh, because of networks? The biggest and simple answer to is the commodity of this century is information. Okay, if we look at wealth creation since the end of World War II, from about 45 to 70, it was manufacturing. That was the bad. The biggest company in the world was General Motors. Okay, and the, the saying was, how goes General Motors? That's how America goes. In the 70s, okay, the value proposition was in energy and food. The first and second Arab oil embargoes in 73 and 79, failures of crops in China, failures of crops in Russia, anchovies not running off the coast of Peru, record food prices, all of that. By the 80s, the value proposition was in asset liability management, the consolidation of world capital markets. In the 90s, it was the 86, Microsoft uh, went public. So it was an age of computational skills. 
That's been followed by information and the, the social media as the value. So now it's an information age, the manufacturing value added, the food value added, the reorganization value added. The commodity of this hundred years is information and the underlying technology which allows it to be transferred. Data itself is the commodity that's being traded on your exchanges. So you, you could the see data, a market for data. Data is, is, you know, artificial intelligence data. This is the, not the oil is it pales by comparison to Look at the market capitalizations of companies and see where the oil companies are relative to the informational. It's right before our eyes. We are creating and living in a world with the allocation and the production and distribution of data and information is the commodity of this century, in my humble opinion. I mean, data has always been the commodity in a market, right? Uh, in, in, in the futures market that you created, you're actually creating right. Right. based on yes. expectation, right? Um, but uh, having created a market for interest rates, for commodities, for um, you know, carbon, um, uh, what do you see the market for data looking like? Um, you know, well, what would be its essential of, characteristic? It's the business that I'm in now, the exchange that, that I'm in now. If I can, if you'll forgive me for Please. talking about my, my current passion and love. In 2011, uh, somebody called me up and said, the Royal Bank of Scotland just fired four people for manipulating LIBOR. I said... No surprise, we had sold our climate exchange. We were looking at water markets in China and California. I called my staff in and I said, this is the end. That LIBOR is going because when, an, when a, a bank fires its own employees, you know that it's not one. There had to be, and as an economist, it takes, it's very simple. You can't collude unless you have two. And if you have two, you're going to likely have four and uh, that the whole system was broken. There was no national interest rate in 07, 08, that there were people that surprisingly enough, a commodity which had no transport costs differed. The interest rate in California was different from Birmingham, Alabama, and different from Lexington, Kentucky, and different. How could it be? that the world's largest economy, that the price of money, a non-physical commodity, could be 30% higher in one locale than another. It meant the system was broken. And that if I could connect a bank in Appalachia to lend money to a Brooklyn, New York bank to finance an Uber, I would unlock a huge amount of capital flows in the United States, that there was cash rich areas in one part, that the US was a series of regional economies. Then, well, why is that of interest? It's of interest because if you took the average price of all that, that's really the American interest rate. It's not what gets traded between big banks. It's the flows of capital 
between 5,300, oh, spread over 4 million square miles, 4 million square miles compared to 90,000 in the UK, 5,000 banks that represent $11 trillion in assets. And so I got on a plane, I went to Green Bay, Wisconsin, and when it was zero in the winter, I went to Tupelo, Mississippi, where Elvis Presley was born in the heat of summer. I went in the east and west and north and south. I visited 125 small banks and developed a network. Once the network was developed, I could be the honest platform for interbank borrowing and lending, and nobody need to set price because a hundred different banks expressing their view bound, none of which were big enough to influence price would create a Maribor national interest rate. That was the dream. That was 2012. I did that for four years. I got on a plane to Washington. Another advice for potential financial innovators. I have three rules. Never surprise a regulator. Never surprise a regulator. Never surprise a regulator. I got on a plane with the leading <laughs> attorney, uh, Raj Cohn at Sullivan and Cromwell. I briefed the Fed. I briefed the OCC, the FDIC, the SEC, the CFTC. I said, I have a dream. This is what I'm going to do. And I'm going to come back every year. I don't want anything from you. And I have nothing to criticize about your behavior but I'm gonna go in the private sector and try to develop a benchmark because LIBOR is dangerous and gonna fall apart. And I came back every year and briefed them about what we were doing. The end of LIBOR is in four months and we'll see if I got it right or got it wrong. And it'll be interesting no matter what happens because it is really, a incredible film or movie when you think about what can go wrong and what can go right. And can you link 5,000 financial institutions into a network? And if it succeeds, it's interesting why. And if we fail, it's interesting as well. It's a clinical study. So I'm excited. I think we have done the right thing. We're, we are promoting the interests of small towns who disproportionately create jobs in America. The local bank is important when you've got a country of 4 million square miles. They need financial literacy and their banker provides it. Is banking the only institutional form uh, for pricing the cost of money today. We started from with three or four small banks. We now have 5.2 trillion in assets and the American financial exchange is 25% of US banking by volume and by numbers, 1,100, 1,200 banks. We have 44 non-banks and because now there's so much liquidity outside of the bank. So we have corporates like John Deere and American Electric Power. We have insurance companies like Northwestern Mutual. We have money managers like Guggenheim. And so we have financial institutions and industrial companies and insurance companies 
because there are flows of funds that are so large and the balance sheets of companies are so fantastic that there is a better way for supply and demand to meet. And what would we see at the end of it? Is it an institution, another exchange? You will see we have something called the American Financial Exchange. And we'll either take it public, uh, which we did the climate exchange, and then it was bought by the intercontinental exchange. Uh, our investors did handsomely. Uh, they made seven and a half to 15 times their money. And the dream is that we take this public and the Chicago Merck or the New York Stock Exchange buys it, or maybe the Hong Kong Exchange. and. We create a new American financial, and then I can come back and talk about water with you, because I have, a dream, I have a dream about water and information and data that, that I want to get on with, too. <laughs> Doug, you, you're an intellectual, you're, you know, you're a markets creator, you're a businessman, uh, all in one. I, you know, this... You know, this conversation really can go in many different directions. Just one last question, just for this conversation. When you see the equities market going, you know, the way it's doing now, in fact, last night, both Nasdaq and, and, and um, Wall Street, um, you know, uh, did very, very well. Uh, you know, it looks like there is no end to that. Um, what do you think of when you see uh, equities going so well? You know, is it at the expense of everything else? Um, you know, or do you do you do you think there should be some kind of a reckoning uh, and a balancing uh, in the U.S. economy? Yeah, I think there is at some time, but the the difference is today we've created, you know, four or five trillion dollars in the U.S. of new money, and if you look at the alternatives, you know, the ten year at one twelve, gold at eighteen hundred an ounce fixed income 30 years, you know, at 2.3, mortgages, uh, Jenny Mays at 3.0. Uh, equities on a relative basis are cheap. Now, having said that, I think somebody's got to be really cautious here that these are hitting unmatched un <laughs> highs. Unmapped. Uh, Territory. Yeah. territory, there's leak, liquid oxygen seeping out, and then I could either propel a rocket or the rocket falls over. So it's not like we're ready for escape velocity, you know, into a, a new orbit. So I, you know, I think people have to be careful and measure the risks. It's not to say it's not going to continue to go up, but but I think prudence is, is widely misused and that people should think about it. It's not as easy as it looks. And remember, two, th two things as a trader and a last wisdom. It never looks worse than at the bottom of the market, and it never looks better at the top of a market. We all worry about, um, you know, how the U.S. economy is evolving. It's in uncharted territory. Uh, you know, the the, the, the so-called quantitative easing, the uh, the Fed, uh, you know, putting out so much money out into the marketplace, uh, never done before. Uh, and you know, just when you thought that 2008 was already the height of, uh, um, you know. Uh, 
printed money. Uh, it's now going on to another realm altogether. I worry about that. I really do, because it is unchartered. And these are very smart people. But, you know, this is a $22 trillion economy. And if you get it wrong, it's not like a rowboat, you know, where you take one oar out of the water and you change direction. Um, it's $22 trillion And you know, it's it's got to be carefully handled. So far, I think the grades are very good. I applaud the chairman of the Fed and 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 the and the last three or four. They've been great. You know, they've done a great job. Um, but I'm always worried about the things I don't see and I don't know, and I don't know what's going on structurally. You can't have unending growth. The business cycle is not over, in my opinion. There, you know, we we we're gonna have to be prudent as we watch this. Having said that, you know, I've never I I have worries about what economists call rent seeking, the purchase of economic power through political power. I think it's very dangerous in the United States. States that that there's one end that's prudent regulation, and there's another where the regulation is purchased, and and I think we that economists call that economic rent, and I worry about purchased regulation as opposed to prudential regulation, and and but by and large, um, it has been since I grew up um, forever a very bad idea to short America's ingenuity. It's not a good trade. The, the big thing about the U.S. economy is that it's the most externalized economy in the world. Uh, the rest of us hold U.S. debt, and the rest of us, and the single biggest U.S. debt is the dollar, right? 30, I, I'm told that 30, nearly nearly 40% of U.S. assets uh, circulate outside the U.S. It might be higher for the dollar itself. <laughs> Um, you know, so the rest of us are invested. Including um, me too. So I, I, we're all invested. I share with you. You and I are brothers that way. <laughs> in that way. You know, so it's in our interest to to make sure that, you know, um, you know, that 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 it takes us somewhere. Um, like someone once said, if you if you owe the bank ten ten thousand dollars, you're in trouble. But if you owe the bank uh, you know, a hundred million dollars. The bank's in trouble. So, you know, uh, you know. So, I mean, it is an economy that's now twenty-seven trillion in debt. Uh, you know, and as you say, the GDP is about twenty-two trillion. Uh, you know, it's um, the ability to meet its obligation uh, is stretched at the at this point. So, um, you know, it's it's very. It'll be very. And having said that. So much of uh, GDP today is is uh, created on digital and uh, and the future. We are back to 1901, uh, you know, which is the productivity gains and so on um, justifies it along as we go along. So, in a lot of ways, um, you know, uh, all of us um, continue to be guided by. Um, the innovations that are taking place in the U.S. Your career in, in, as an outsider looking in um, is predicated by the U.S. leaving the gold standard in 1971, you know, and then and then the price of money floated and had to discover it's, uh, you know, a new mechanism and you created the markets for that, uh, the interest rates uh, futures. 
you know, and 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 we are back in there. Last point. I mean, in in that book on blockchain, what what are you saying? Uh, I, I just want to capture, um, you know, your sense on blockchain, on on crypto, on um, you know, as I said, the network aspect of the, the economy. The, the message was was simple and consistent with the conversation the two of us have just had and the warm exchange of ideas. So. Uh, I uh, did work at Berkeley in the 60s and developed the first uh, schematics for electronic trading as a young professor. And it went dormant for years and then all of a sudden uh, patents on it came about. And I used that as a vehicle to story to say electronic trading, the first application of it, there was the work we did in Berkeley in 69 to develop a, uh, we, it was a wild model. It was the world would someday have electronic markets that were for profit, as opposed to physical markets that were mutually owned. So this was a whole new bust model. It was for, to create a new exchange in San Francisco, because um, uh, you, there were none in the West Coast and, and there were commodities indigenous like palm oil and other commodities in which there would be a natural home. I did some consulting in 86 with Arthur Anderson Consulting and the first people were to enjoy and embrace it with a Swiss. The next were the Germans in 1990. They upended the English floor model. And, and, and for the first time, Germany became a market-based country. And it became pervasive in the United States in 2000. So the birth of electronic trading and its ultimate distribution was a 20 to 40 year history. The blockchain was not invented by Nakamoto in 07 or 08. There's a guy by the name of Stuart Haber who developed the blockchain, who was an academic at Princeton. And he did the first work on the blockchain in 1990. If that time period is right, the world will change 20 to 40 years later, which means by 25 to 30, crypto, blockchain, et cetera, if we use electronic trading or other financial innovations, the message is the blockchain is already here. It's not as new as people think. Power steering was invented in the 30s and didn't get used until the 50s. The blockchain has been invented a long time ago and, and cryptos came along, but the innovation is far enough along and you're going to wake up one day and it's all digital and it's happening quicker. I didn't know it, but COVID-19 accelerated the entire trend uh, that existed before. Does blockchain change anything that you, that you have created in markets? The way in which information is packaged that's shared between different people and in a trusted form? Does that change? Yes. So, so we are, I think, the only exchange in the world that is on the blockchain, this little thing, American Financial Exchange. And every time a trade occurs, 
we print a private coin, Ethereum. That says every exchange will publish the price of a good or a stock, the quantity that changed hands, right? And the time. We record where the money originated in Lexington, Kentucky, where it was consumed in Chicago, Illinois. We tell you the borrower's characteristic, what their tier one capital was, what, what their uh, loss ratio was, what their net interest margin. So every time you create a trade, we can actually instantaneously track the cash flows across the 50 states and the 4 million square miles. We can tell you the city and state that the money came from and where it went. That's a market in itself, those coins. So you're well into the future. So, you know, you're not done yet. Don't be fooled by the fact that I'm 700 years young. <laughs> 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 Dog, this is a great conversation. Uh, it, it, even on that point alone, blockchain, uh, that's another two hours worth of, uh, you know, drilling down to how it's going to you know, come together for you and, it, it and for markets in hope. Well, listen, I, I have to say coming from you, uh, it means a lot because you were a creator yourself. And while I'm the focus of this interview, you have an equally rich story. You, you built an organization that's world renowned. You've been a leader. You know, the very fact that, you know, you could for, you know, create a, a market for 30,000 people to listen to a conversation, forget who is on it, is an incredible achievement in of itself. So I'm honored to be the subject of your inquiry. Thanks, Doc. Thank you very much. Uh, but the honor belongs to me. Uh, you're the man who's created uh, so much of what the market infrastructure is in a country which is uh, ruthless. Uh, you know, it, uh, you have to make it happen. It's not driven by policy. Uh, you have described it. You have to go knocking door by door. And I think that uh, you've, you've coupled uh, charm and entrepreneurship and intellectual rigor um, you know, <laughs> uh, into amazing story. I don't say this um, you know, lightly. Uh, when I say it's my honor to have had this conversation with you, uh, I really mean it. And I, I wish I'll be able to test with you, you know, different topics um, um, along as we go along. So thank you very much for spending time with me today. It's a pleasure. I really look forward to that dinner in Chicago dinner, <laughs> or, or in, in Beijing. As you know, I'm a big fan of China, as you are. And uh, thank you for having me again. Thanks, Doc. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Radio Finance. For more content, visit the Asian Banker website and follow us on social media.